Hello, this is Matthew from Surrey, England. Jed Bartlett is my president is a Chipperish media production and is entirely funded by listeners like you. To support Chipperish and gain access to exclusive content, please visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Hi, and welcome to Jed Bartlett is My President, a podcast about the West Wing and denial. My name is Lonnie Diane Rich, and each week I take an in-depth look at an episode of the West Wing along with a special guest. And for a little while, we pretend that the worst thing happening in the White House right now is, you know, a potential nuclear accident in Idaho. This week's episode is episode 18 from season three, Stirred. Here to talk with me about Stirred is Rebecca Lavoie, host and producer of the podcasts Crime Writers On, and These Are Their Stories, a Law and Order podcast. Welcome, Rebecca. Hello, Lonnie. How are you? I am doing really well. It is okay. And now I have sirens outside my. Is there a nuclear disaster going on? Apparently. (laughs) No, I'm doing good. How are you? I am great. Thanks. All right, so I have a question for you, Rebecca, that is specifically meant for you. You are a true crime writer. True. And as that, I'm wondering, if anyone on the West Wing was to just lose it and commit murder, who would it be and why? C.J. Craig, hands down. (laughs) You think she's just going to lose it one day? Well, here's the thing. She's also my favorite character on the show. And Mm -hmm. I really feel for her in almost every single episode because I feel like CJ is part of the inner circle, right? You see Mm -hmm. her sitting on those couches in the Oval Office. She's part of every important conversation. And, you know, the really frustrating thing about the West Wing is that we also see sort of the constant compromise that's taking place behind closed doors. Like, you Mm -hmm. just wish that Jeb could just go out there and be like, I'm the mother president. Like... (laughs) This is what's going to happen, but you can't because you have to deal with Congress and all the other stuff that's going on. <laughs> and so so that you, you see all that stuff going on behind closed doors, all those negotiations constantly. And CJ is the one always tasked with going out and selling it mm-hmm. or messaging it or glossing it over. And there are some notable moments, you know, I think of an episode where CJ is told, you know, by Leo, you know, can't you just go out there and tell them that you misheard what it is you were supposed to say? (laughs) And she has to be like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Then they'll never like, they'll ask me that, they'll ask me if I misheard like every single day from here on out. Like, I can't go out there and say that. Um, I really feel like a lot of the things that raise my you know, feminist hackles around sexism on the on the West Wing. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people point to Donna, but for me, it's very much about CJ. She definitely oh, yeah. is like the most senior uh, woman in the White House, and yet she basically, you know, she gets served a giant poop sandwich. <laughs> You know, she really does on a regular basis. Uh, It's a giant duty sandwich, uh, a sandwich full of caca that she is uh, given every morning and has to then sell to the American public. And um, I don't know, that would make me want to murder someone or maybe myself after a period of time. That's for sure. Certainly understand that. All right. This episode aired on April 3rd, 2002. The teleplay was written by Aaron Sorkin and Eli Addy with a story credit to D.D. Myers. Myers was the White House press secretary during the first two years of the Clinton administration and was a consultant on the West Wing through the end of season six. And the character of C.J. Craig supposedly was partially inspired by Myers. So I think we've got a 
a little theme going with C.J. Craig. Stirred was directed by Jeremy Kagan, who directed two episodes of The West Wing during its run. This episode and episode six of season two, The Lame Duck Congress. So let's get into the synopsis. In this episode of The West Wing, Donna wants the president to give her high school English teacher a presidential proclamation. A truck carrying uranium rods crashes near Elkhorn, Idaho, and it might be a terrorist attack. Toby, Josh, and CJ consider kicking Hoynes off the re-election ticket and replacing him with Admiral Fitzwallis. And the president does Charlie's taxes. <laughs> Which is like the smallest thing, but I love that. <laughs> it's the best part of this whole episode. It's how I identify the this episode. The one where the president does Charlie's taxes is really fun. All right, so let's <laughs> hop right in on that because one of the things that I really love about the West Wing is the way that we have these kind of civics lessons, you know, every week about different things within the government and how they work. And a couple of things that we've got this week in our like civics class this week is the presidential proclamation with Donna and her teacher Molly Morello. Mm-hmm. Um, she you know, wants Josh to talk to the president about having a proclamation made and talks about all of the things. February apparently is National Sewing Month, or at least was <laughs> at the time. And I think that that's great because I sew on occasion. So that was very personal to me. Um, and then we also have Charlie's, you know, rebate versus the advance, which was something that during this time um, was sort of going on where you would get these. I don't know if you remember this back then, but you'd get these checks and you'd be like, oh, great. You know, you'd spend oh, that yeah. money. And then next year, you like taxes. 700 bucks. Right. And you'd get dinged. And the thing is, I fell for it every time. (laughs) You know, Charlie apparently didn't. He paid off his uh, his visa bill. (laughs) Yeah, Charlie. Let's just talk about Charlie for a second. Because first of all, for someone who is at work 24 hours a day, he doesn't make any money. Like $35,000. I know. Well, that's one of the things that they constantly say about all of these people. Like early in season one, they have that one episode where everybody has to go through the financial disclosure. Mm -hmm. And then Toby had like $125,000 that he made off of, you know, some kind of um, investment that he had some, you know, possible inside information about. So there was that whole thing. And of course, Josh got the smoking jacket and all this kind of stuff. But the big thing in that episode was it was all about like how little money all of these people make but they're working all the time so it's not like they ever have to spend that money yeah they're working all the time they're working so all the time that you know toby tries to send a secretary home in this episode it's what like 10 o'clock at night just like i don't leave until you leave and i'm thinking what are you making, like $42,000? Exactly. <laughs> you should, in fact. But that's leave. what I love about the West Wing is that it, it's never about, like, these people are not there because they make money to motivate them. It's because they're doing something and they believe in it and it's all idealistic. And Isn't I think, it adorable? I know. And that's what makes the West Wing, like, I know. I know it's fantasy storytelling. I know that this is just as unreal as, like, the dragons in Lord of the Rings, you know? <laughs> but, but I still love that sense of idealism and whenever I'm watching one of these episodes, I completely buy it. I completely buy that these people are so passionate about government and about policy. They're like Leslie Nope, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, but you know, what? I actually think there's, I think there's an underappreciated trick mm-hmm. that's done on the West Wing to make you feel that way, and I notice it every time you see scenes that are supposed to be at night in the West Wing. Yeah. 
the way they light the set on this show is so warm Mm -hmm. and cozy. Mm -hmm. Like, Every column has like an ambient light shooting from behind it. Every plant is like lit from behind. There's so much yellow, warm, like table lighting and, um, you know, behind, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. sconces with like beautiful milk glass. You know for sure that if you went into any of these real offices, it would just be like overhead fluorescence oh, exactly. in boxes, probably, right? <laughs> exactly. But I, I really do think there is something about watching these people who, by the way, are also wearing like very textured clothing yes. all the time. Like mm-hmm. everyone all the time has like a cable knit and tweed. Yes. And like there's a lot of texture. <laughs> it's very it earnest des- clothing. <laughs> yes, it's, it's designed. But it's designed. It's like, it's like the milk and cookies of set design and costuming. It is designed to make you feel like Everything they're saying and doing is believable and is earnest and is warm and cozy. Mm-hmm. And it also looks that way and sounds that way. Oh, yeah. You know, that I just think the whole production design around it is one of the unsung heroes of this show. Oh, it absolutely is. And one of the things that, you know, because I, I teach uh, television production and screenwriting at Syracuse University. And one of the things when I talk to my students about when they're doing something, they don't want it to look realistic. You don't want it to look the way it actually looks. You want it to look the way you want it to feel. You know, Mm -hmm. so the way that it feels for these people is that even though in reality they would be standing under these really harsh fluorescent lights and they would have these blue circles under their eyes and they would be wearing, you know, like crumpled uh, linen stuff or whatever, like crappy suits and whatever. What we see them in, we see a representation, a visual representation of not what it would actually be but how it would feel if you really were that idealistic working in this kind of environment where you can do things that make a difference and that change the world, you know? Right. Um, So that's one of the things that I I love. I love the production design in the West Wing because it really does, you, you feel and sense that earnestness and nothing on television should look realistic it should look the way it feels (laughs) as opposed to the way it actually you know physically would be and I think that the West Wing does that beautifully absolutely it does yeah it's it's one of my favorite parts about the show I know it's wonderful well let's go ahead and start with the most important thing in this episode which of course is the president doing Charlie's taxes right (laughs) so I, I have to say that I have this obsession with technology And especially over time, you know, like what changes. One of my favorite things about this moment, although, of course, the moment where, you know, where Charlie's talking to the president, the president is so jazzed about doing taxes and how much he loves it. Sir, I could do most of this myself. I love doing this. Really? Yeah. Filing tax returns? Yeah. Okay. What? I was just thinking about the plurality of Americans who made the decision to pull a lever that has your name next to it. Suckers. You know, it's really fun in that moment. But I love this thing where he says, I've got a DVD player with MP3 playback, which I thought was adorable, costing $599. Yes, which, by the way, there is some sort of like weird, and you probably know this better than I do, there is some sort of like weird Uh rule of technology where um, things actually over time do cost kind of the same as they did when they first came out, like technology things do. Like if Mm -hmm. you look at like the original like Apple II computer when it came out, like it's not Mm -hmm. that much cheaper (laughs) Like you can buy yeah, Apple, no. Apple doesn't go down in price. No, but like for five hundred, like you go to Best Buy right now, you want like a really mm-hmm. good. It would, I guess, it would be, and I, I, like even Blu-ray feels outdated at this point. Yeah. Like a receiver, like whatever it would be with all the integrated mm-hmm. stuff. 
it would be about 500 bucks. I mean, it's whatever the most recent technology is, is going to set you back a little bit. But it's so funny to hear this, you know, DVD player with MP3 playback. And he's so excited. He's like $500, which out of a $700 refund gives him enough money to buy on Her Majesty's Secret yes, Service, which is a DVD. DVDs were expensive <laughs> AF back in the day. Uh, they certainly were. Yeah. And I love that. I think it's just it's the most adorable thing for me like how excited he is about this dvd player you know which of course you get at walmart for like 40 bucks now when when you were talking about technology i thought you were going to be talking Mm -hmm. about like the giant computer on which they were doing the taxes with like the giant box screen and when the president is like (laughs) i'm gonna go ahead and transmit this now beep boop 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 (laughs) <laughs> and they have time to have a whole conversation while it's, quote, transmitting. And it's not actually exactly. transmitting anywhere. It's just calculating, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I love that. I love seeing the technology. I think my favorite thing in, in the West Wing, especially in the early years, are their, uh, their little Apple laptops that when you flip them up, the Apple is upside down <laughs> because they changed that design years later. Yep. And it's just like, honestly, it just warms my little heart. I love seeing old technology. And I'm not sure why I think that is just a personal quirk of mine. But that old technology just I find it the most adorable thing. Um, But I also love in this moment where he's uh, where the president is talking to Charlie about James Bond. Oh, yeah. And the uh, the shaken, not stirred equals a weak martini. And being snooty about it. Yeah. It's obviously really important to him. It's one of those things that, you know, there are things in pop culture that like it's always bothered me that dot, dot, dot. And that Mm -hmm. that would be the thing that the president is talking about, especially juxtaposed with the fact that alcoholism is like the opening scene of this episode. You know, that secret (laughs) AA meeting Mm -hmm. that Hoynes uh, is holding at which now Leo is now attending with all these like high level Mm -hmm. politicians and that Jed would be so schooled in what makes for a good martini, be able to talk about it casually with his young assistant Mm -hmm. and like not think a thing about it. Then meanwhile, all these alcoholics are like skulking around the White House, you know, keeping their uh, addictions secret, which, by the way, also feels anachronistic and adorable to me right now. I know. <laughs> it's really cute <laughs> when the worst thing that the people in the in the West Wing have is like, you know, an alcoholism from, you know. <laughs> yeah, that they haven't had a drink in like 30 years. Oh, so adorable. I know. I know. Well, it's really interesting how they kind of retcon hoins in this episode. And we're going to definitely get to that in a minute. But I really love. Um, one of the things I love the most about Jed Bartlett's character is that he just has this incredible, um, you know, like like font of ephemera. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that he would have this knowledge about James Bond and the weak martini and that it's a bad martini. You know, I absolutely love that he could just pull this information out at any moment and give somebody a lecture on anything at any moment, be it national parks or James Bond or whatever. It's my favorite thing about Jed Bartlett that he'll just come out with all of this information at any given moment and just have this this ton of information just off the top of his head it makes for like amazing dialogue in the show and it feels you know it kind of feels unrealistic I guess in a way that like mm-hmm. a president yeah. would never be this cool a politician would never be this cool actually like it reminded me of somebody who's a real person and I just wanted to tell mm-hmm. you who it is and I just want you to just like hold on to your chair for a second when I tell okay, you who well. it is now of course I uh, live and work in New Hampshire and I work in journalism mm-hmm. in New Hampshire so I have a lot of up close exposure to presidential candidates when they come to the state and oh, sure. hear a lot of raw tape I edit a lot of stories for the web and I just am very I become very familiar with them as characters and as people mm-hmm. and what they're really like 
And um, there actually was one candidate in 2016 in the presidential primary who reminded me a lot of Jed Bartlett, not in terms of policy or, or ideology for sure, but definitely in terms of this. Yeah. And it might blow your mind, but it's Ted Cruz. <gasps> no Ted way. Cruz has an encyclopedic, encyclopedic pop culture knowledge and can do impressions and can talk about uh, film and uh, television shows. And he is... He's able to pull out references. It's like unbelievable. It's like he is—he was like a debate team captain at Princeton oh, or where, yeah. he, where he went to school. And and it's very much the same skill set that we see Jed using. <laughs> Ted Cruz has. And, you know, I would see a lot of reporters talk about Ted Cruz and just say, like, man, if he could just apply that, ener- that same <laughs> energy to being personable around, like, how he feels about policy. Like, a lot of people might right. be, like, actually listening to him right now. But, yeah. Right. So it does exist out there. It was, it's not, like, entirely fictional, I guess. But I also get the sense, too, that it's also – that's where we're seeing Aaron Sorkin come through the script. Because Aaron oh, Sorkin is absolutely. definitely very in touch. He's that guy. Yeah, he's totally that guy. He's absolutely Especially when he's all coked up, as he was when he was writing the show. Well, that's the thing with Aaron Sorkin is that, like, he wrote most of the episodes, or at least was, like, deeply involved in most of the episodes for the first four seasons, which is such a tremendous amount of creative work to do during that time period that, you know, you, you understand the drug problems because a person, like a regular human person, would not be able to do what he did right? You know, without some kind of like outside intervention, you know? And I mean, it's, it's a shame because he has so much incredible, like natural talent. And, and I hate to look at, you know, the personal kind of behind the scenes space of it and how sad and kind of tragic that was for him. But it also allowed him to, to kind of be all of these characters. Like, I feel like there's a bit of Aaron Sorkin in all of these guys, in Leo and in the president and in Josh and in Sam, and especially, especially, I think, in Toby. Right. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's it's kind of sad, but also at the same time, like, I, I, I love the work that Aaron Sorkin does. I love the way that he writes particular kinds of dialogue, especially the kind of dialogue that you see in the West Wing. And so, like, I feel sad for him, like, as a person having had to go through that that kind of struggle but greedily like I'm I'm grateful that he was able to do it because it made such amazing television you're so much kinder than I am I mean because <laughs> by the way I, I agree it's sad I'm not saying it isn't mm-hmm. all I can think of when I see scenes like the president doing the Charlie's taxi scene and it turning yeah. into this incredibly pithy dialogue heavy thing about James Bond mm-hmm. I imagine an actor getting a script that is five pages worth of pop culture references, and it's like you've got 45 seconds. Go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's so and make it happen, Captain. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and sell it and not and not yeah. look lost as you're delivering and they it. Do, though. They do. These actors are unbelievable yeah. with the stuff that they are given to deliver. I mean, it is it is incredible. But going back to what we were talking about a little bit before we got on this like crazy, and I'm still my mind is blown about Ted Cruz, but we're gonna get back into <laughs> To, into our, I'll send our you some nice links. <laughs> denial. I, I'm looking forward to it. Our nice denial laden, uh, you know, episode of Jed Bartlett is my president. We we go to Hoynes, and the thing is. Hoynes is a big part of this episode right. and we spend a lot of time sort of like retconning this character that we have made, you know, really unlikable We're supposed to for hate the him. first two seasons, right? right? Mm-hmm. You know, so here we are, they spend two seasons making Hoynes like really kind of a douche and then suddenly he's 
this stand up guy. You know, we've got him dealing with all of this vulnerability. One of the things we were talking about in the first episode of Jed Bartlett is my president is, is this, this idea of vulnerability within the characters. And, and can you write a vulnerable character without making them likable? And Hoynes was kind of our go-to example is kind of the, the thing that I go to is that he does have vulnerability. He has, you know, he's the vice president and he's sort of, you know, always kind of at the bottom of the hill, you know, everything slides down the hill to him and, he, you know, and he's just this guy and he has this alcoholism and, and you see this vulnerability within him. He's also kind to Leo. He brings Leo in early in the first season. He brings Leo into his, you know, his personal kind of private AA meeting, which I think is very kind. And yet Hoynes remains so completely unlikable for the first few seasons. Then we get this episode and suddenly we get all of this stuff with him like he's you know he's fighting for this you know this internet access for you know rural like for poor people so that they can get internet access and his name is on it and then they have to remove his name because of all of these political things and he's like yeah let's do it he's just like this completely stand-up guy in this episode and then we go back into his alcoholism which we've never really looked at before and we took all the teeth out of his alcoholism he used to drink some beer in college right. and this is not to like undermine like people who have alcoholism in their families you know who struggle with that like that is a big deal and I don't mean to undermine that at all but I mean did you feel watching this episode that they just took all the teeth out of it that here we have this guy who hasn't had a drink in like 20 some years who the last time he drank was in college right. And he goes to this meeting and he's doing this whole thing. And it just feels like they took all the teeth out of it because they're trying to make him look like this stand up guy. They're like trying to kind of whitewash his history. What did you think of that? Yeah, it was a little weird and interesting, too, because I think that, you know, the whole thing with Hoynes is that he was the opponent. Right. And um, mm -hmm. he was one of the first symbols of the constant compromise that we see going on mm -hmm. in this show in terms of politics and policy like you want to do this but you have to do this right right like you you want to have uh this guy but you have to choose this guy because these are the states that you can win and we see this this is a huge theme running through the west wing and i think that it is reflective of and, you know, this is this is me talking as a citizen of the United States, not as somebody mm -hmm. who, you know, is coming out saying I'm a member of a particular party or whatever. But right. I think in the last, I want to say, 30 years, basically the narrative is Democrats are just really, really bad at pretending to be good at their, mm -hmm. like, you know, at what they want to get done, right? So right. Democrats aren't good at giving things brand names. Think of all the brand names that Republicans have been successful in, like death right. panels, uh, Obamacare, mm -hmm. um, you yes. know, uh, they're just really, really good at creating brands. Right to work is like a great mm -hmm. example. <laughs> That's a brand name. It doesn't actually reflect what the policy is. It is just a brand name given that, that makes you sure. think, like, of course I want a right, everybody should have the right to work right? right and democrats are famously bad at it and i think a lot of what this show tried to do was show that right so mm -hmm. hoynes to me before this episode was always like the personification of just how bad democrats are at just really being true to themselves when they actually get some power at least you know right. that's kind of like the narrative mm -hmm. that's always happened <laughs> so in this episode it's almost like we might be bad at it 
but at least we're all kind of good people when it comes down right. to it. It's almost just sort of like a, a maybe a comforting of the audience. And you know, the thing that was interesting is that you know what it comes down to, and this does feel very timely right now to me, is that what Jed is saying in this episode is that you know whatever you think about this guy, he's competent. You know, he, mm-hmm. he's and and, and we want to have like the devil we know rather than the devil that we don't right. know. Mm-hmm. And there's confidence here. And even if we don't like him, and even if X, Y, or Z, but yes, it, it was a little weird. I mean, if you've if you've been watching this, you know, week to week to week to week, and then this one comes up, it's like, wait, what? But as a one-off episode, you know, having not seen it for many years, and then choosing this one out of thin air and asking yeah. if I could choose this one, <laughs> it, it did feel to me like the, the theme was comp. You know, mm-hmm. that that should rise above all. And man, does that feel good right now to hear someone feel that way? Oh, yeah, <laughs> it does. No, absolutely. That it's that's about, you know, the the ability to do the job and to be good at what you do, you know, and Democrats are like there's one of the things from um, from the opening of the newsroom. I don't know if you've seen oh, yeah. that show, the Aaron Sorkin <laughs> of course show, I have. But, you know, the Will McAvoy's big speech where he's like, if you're so smart, why do you lose so goddamn always? Right, right. You know, you know I actually so think classic of the Democratic Party. It's funny because the newsroom, let's be honest, I watched every yeah. episode. It, it was not a good mm-hmm. show. It wasn't. <laughs> But I watched every episode and I kind of hated mm-hmm. to love it. I like lo- hate watched yeah. it. If it came back right now, like they really need to bring that show back because they have so oh, yeah. much to work with right now that they did not have <laughs> when that show was actually on. Yes, exactly. If you think about what Aaron Sorkin exactly. was trying to do with that show was to like show mm-hmm. that the press was the, the thing that the press was supposed to be and sort of like the First Amendment themes were like, oh yeah, that's much more relevant this year than it was three years ago when that show was on. Like they need to bring it back. Big time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think so. Well, I mean, and the thing is that, that what they did with the newsroom is very similar to kind of what they do with the West Wing is that they take this this ideal of journalism, you know, and like the newsroom and what that means. And, you know, they open up with this whole thing where this, you know, um, and of course, you know, we're shifting into a completely other show. But I think it's really similar and somewhat reflective of what happens in the West Wing, that we have this this idealized vision of what journalism should be, you know, in the same way that in in the West Wing, we have this idealized vision of what politics should be, that it should be about the work, right. you know, and that's the thing, like, uh, that's, I think, what I find so fascinating about Aaron Sorkin's work in general, is that whatever the love stories are, and we'll have, like, romantic love stories throughout the West Wing and throughout the newsroom and throughout Sports Night, everything that he does, and he's, he's you know, hit or miss with with romance stories the way that he yes, tells he them. Is. <laughs> but the romance in these stories is always about the romance between a person and their work. Right. And for me, like that honestly hits me right where I live. Like that that the biggest love of my life, no matter what I go through in my personal life and romantically, the biggest love of my life is the work. Mm-hmm. And so to see people who are in love with the work and with the ideal of what it is that they do. Like for me, that speaks to me so completely. And that's what I really love about the West Wing. And here we have this moment where we have Hoynes who, you know, and he has this wonderful moment, you know, where he says he's talking about, I think, uh, I can't remember who it was. I think Daniel Webster said like, um, you know, I don't propose to be buried until I'm dead. I like what Daniel Webster said when the Whig Party offered him vice president. I do not propose to be buried until I am dead. Used to be every Republican's favorite Democrat. Ah. It's 
screw it, Sam. Absolutely, Mr. Vice President. Let's take my name off it. And he pulls out that quote and talks about like what it means to be vice president and that he's he's really just there to like get to the next thing. But while he's there, you know, he wants to do the work. Yeah. And I like that. And that makes me like Hoynes a little bit more. But it just seems like we spent all this time <laughs> making him this guy who is just sitting there in, in the vice president's chair, just waiting oh, to yeah. be able to get to be president. A former you know? enemy who you're placating, just living with. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's like the mom, right. mother-in-law living downstairs, you know. Exactly. No, no, I totally agree. But, you know, you're talking about loving the work. I mean, that really mm-hmm. was a theme in the episode, too, because that's kind of what the yeah. Molly Morello stuff was all about. Like somebody oh. who... You know, despite what was happening around her, uh, mm-hmm. did that and did this and did that. And then you sort of see Donna and, you know, on one of her. It's funny because can we just switch topics and talk about Donna for a second? Oh, no, let's. Absolutely. Because obviously, you know, one of the big things that happened in the West, in the, happens in the West Wing, the long arc of it is like the evolution mm-hmm. of Donna. And this episode right. is a great reminder that there's really no evolution of Donna. It's just the evolution mm-hmm. of her not being willing to... S- I don't want to say it's her not. It's not that. Like all the conversations between Josh and Donna in this episode, <laughs> I, I look at it now and I'm like, I can't believe there was a time when I thought that like he was what you aspired to when you so clearly have your act together so much exactly. more than this guy does <laughs> on like 150 different levels. I mean, she's sexy as hell in this episode. Oh, yeah. Those sweaters, mm-hmm. man, those cashmere, like skin tight sweaters. And she's oh, like, yeah. I've never had a bad hair day. And I know I love that. <laughs> she does all the research and then all the work. And at the end, we're mm-hmm. supposed to be applauding him for actually like writing a hastily poorly written memo and handing it <laughs> right. to the president. Like she did all the work. She did all the stuff. And this always happens with Josh and Donna. Like this is a typical thing. Like she is there doing all the work, doing, you know, figuring everything out, doing the research, pulling it all together. And Josh is basically just there to push back against her so that she has something to, you know, to push against and to do her thing, you know. But I love this. I love this interaction with Josh and Donna where they're talking about presidential proclamations. And she, of course, is mocking all of the proclamations. And, you know, the February is National Sewing Month. And, and you know, we're in the middle of National Digestive Disorders <laughs> Week or whatever it is, you know, and that these proclamations don't mean anything thing and um and at the same time you know he's pushing back saying we can't just you know pull out a proclamation for nothing isn't that adorable though it's also anachronistic and adorable the idea that that there would be questions if all of a sudden there were molly morello day and then people were to find out it was because molly morello was the teacher of a white house staffer and that would be a scandal and i'm like that is adorable I know. Wouldn't that be great? That would be like the most adorable scandal scandal this week (laughs) to ever happen. Well, it really is. You know, especially because he has to. You know, she has to go and and vet. Then, of course, this this teacher that she you know knew and loved and everything in high school. And you know, and there's this wonderful moment where she's like, "You're afraid." You know, she's. These things are for important causes, not individual perks for staffers. National Digestive Diseases Awareness Week. When was that? Right now. It began after General Pulaski Memorial Day. Look, if you're going to mock the dead... February was National Sewing Month, by the way. It's still the president's name and reputation. We haven't vetted this woman. You're saying, what if she's a lesbian? If if she were a lesbian, we could talk. I'm, I'm saying, what if she's a bicycle thief? And that's that's really a nice moment. But, you know, I have to ask you, though, like... 
is there a teacher like you know he was talking about when she first talks about molly morello and he's like well you know mr feig was that for me did you have a teacher in high school you know the one that like you know if you were in the white house you would be like i want a proclamation for this person oh yeah for me it was all about like my music teacher it was like stephen pagano oh, yeah. and mr martin were like my go-to uh, cut other classes to go hang out in their office <laughs> teacher. Absolutely. I will say that I did that. I am uh, 43 years old right now. I can confess to that without getting detention. I did cut class oh, sure. to go hang out with Stephen Pagano and Peter Martin when I was in high school. <laughs> Well, I had a teacher. She was, of course, my English teacher. Um, she was fantastic. Her name was Mrs. Gardner. She was tough as nails. And I swear to God, this this actually happened. Um, we had a student who came in with a shotgun one day. Really? Determined to kill Mrs. Gardner. Huh. Yeah. And like, and, and nothing happened. You know, she shot like... I think something happened. Like you had a student come in with a shotgun who fired it in your well, school. Well, someone came in with a shotgun. That counts. Yeah, something after did this teacher, <laughs> you know, because she was tough and everything. But like Mrs. Gardner, like she took a little time off after you know the attempted murder, and um and came back and was so tough as nails and like would push you to always be like the absolute best you could be and she was one of those people who was always about the work and I think sort of like you know ignited this this fire within me to like do the work and do it really well because there's nobody who is more unsung than a high school teacher right you know like these people come in they work so unbelievably hard and harder every year as our government makes their jobs even harder you know um and they come in and they do this amazing work and they change people's lives and so for me honestly like every every staffer should be able to have a day proclaimed for whatever teacher it is that made a difference in their lives because I think that that's you know that's an amazing thing like the teachers who do that and nobody ever knows their name so for me this whole Molly Morello thing was one of the most touching elements like throughout all of the West Wing for me like at the end when you know she goes into the Oval Office and the president is like I really time. can't do this it's too much inside baseball <laughs> and then when he gets her on the phone and starts talking to her about Beowulf, mm -hmm. you know, and Twelfth Night and that whole thing, I, I cry every time. I've watched this episode a couple of times preparing for this episode, <laughs> and it just makes me cry every single time. Yeah, and I love how Molly Morello sounds like she's not willing to put up with a... Uh... Jed's nonsense either. <laughs> right. And I love too how she doesn't recognize his voice when he first says Mrs. Morello. Exactly. And I'm like, you know, like there is no circumstance that I can possibly imagine where if I heard the president on the phone. Or Martin Sheen. Knowing that, that I'm talking. Well, Martin Sheen, right. But knowing that you're talking to, you know, this this kid who was in your your class who works for the president, like I would be like, if if Barack Obama was like on the phone, I would be like, oh my God, you know? Like I think I would I would have a question and also like there's no way that you're on the phone with with the president or with the White House and don't know that you're on the phone with the White House because somebody called you and said hey I'm so and so with the White exactly, House like, exactly exactly you know so I mean I, I found that to be like a little bit a little bit cute and a little bit twee but I went with it like I went through the whole thing and that moment where where Donna is talking to her and saying I'm here in the Oval Office and it's because of you I just wanted to say. Everything's all right. Tell her where you are. Donna? Mrs. Morello, I'm in the Oval Office with the President of the United States, and it's because of you. Oh, my God. That kills Moment me. of silence for just... a second for Donna saying that. Okay. It was very sweet. I totally agree. I know. No, it was great. And it was great because it was Donna. 
And Donna is sort of seen, I think, you know, I do have feminist tackles around the show. I think I said that already on this episode. Uh, I don't like how Donna and CJ are on the sidelines all Mm -hmm. the time. And I don't like how when we get women characters who aren't on the sidelines, they're either in it very, very little or they're horrible mm-hmm. characters like Amy, which I'm so glad this was not an Amy episode. I was so worried when we started oh, watching right. it. I'm like, oh my God, what if Amy shows up? And I was talking about it. Tell me Amy's not there. Yeah, no, she's awful. Uh, and Mandy from the first season. Yeah, yeah. Who is just the worst. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, just, and they got rid of her, man. They shoved her under the carpet. We never yeah, mentioned her and, again. We and it's not she's that she's there. the worst. It's that she was written to be the, the worst. She was written really terribly. Yeah, Moira Kelly, the actress who played her, I actually, I really quite so like. So do I. But yeah, Topic. We yeah, we do have a problem with um, with female characters. And, and one of the things is that we have, like, all of these men. Like, CJ is the only, you know, like, majorly powerful woman aside from, I guess, the first lady, you know. Um, and I look at the first lady. Like, her entire staff is all women, too, right. which is a whole other and thing. And that's who I was know, because... talking about when I said she's not mm-hmm. on it enough. Because when Stockard right. Channing is on the show, she she mm-hmm. chews the scenery and owns the show. Oh, you know, yeah. like with the whole mm-hmm. Where's Josh episode, like, oh, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. she owns it like you. But she's mm-hmm. so believable as the one who's actually like sort of like running things behind the things. Oh, yeah. And um, she's underutilized. And I'm sure, you know, she was, you know, aside from Martin Sheen, like <laughs> the time the show was on, like Stalker mm-hmm. Channing was more of a big deal than I think people realized she was at the time. I mean, she's like a well-known like stage actress, and like oh, she was Rizzo, yeah, had a lot of cred, <laughs> and she was just yeah. yeah but I feel like she's one one of the most underutilized characters on the show. I really do. Oh, she is, and she's powerful whenever she's in a scene. And these women who are who are in these positions, you know, like Donna and CJ, are really the only two major you know female characters that we have you know in the regular run of the show aside from various girlfriends and wives and whatever um but when when abby bartlett you know is in a room like she owns that space and she has martin sheen around her pinky finger like she just runs every scene that they're in and it's really wonderful but you know most of the women that we see are secretaries and it's margaret and it's ginger and it's kathy and they're always badass but they're always on the sidelines but even donna it always feels mm-hmm. like they're doing her a favor and indulging her right mm-hmm. <laughs> and meanwhile you know this episode aside when she sort of wants this personal thing done like mm-hmm. she's not wrong most of the time yeah. <laughs> she makes fewer no, mistakes than right. everyone else on the show <laughs> i mean if you look at the way that toby treats his pa on this show Oh, yeah. He is mm-hmm. horrible to her. He is an abusive, mm-hmm. bullying boss <laughs> really in this is. episode. He is. He is horrible. Mm-hmm. Hor- I made like eight notes of it during the show. It's like, yeah, if I worked for someone who spoke to me that way. Like, mm-hmm. I would sue my company for allowing this right. to It's like Uber where this woman works. Well, I know. Well, that's Ginger, right? I mean, she's the one who's so like, she's always cranky with him too, which at least I appreciate that she always looks at him and is like, whatever. And the thing is like, I, I kind of always want her like personal story. You know, like when she goes home at night and is like, my boss is such a jackass. You know? <laughs> He's <laughs> like, so hanged on I kind of all the time. Hear this. Exactly. You know, because he is. He's such a, you know, this thing where he's like, you know, I want something. And then she looks at him and she's like, now. And he's like, no, you know, and yes, you know, whatever. Just be nice, at least, you know. And I love Toby. Like, Toby, honestly, is one of my favorite characters of all time. Like, he he has my heart. But it is, he's, he's so, like, they're so dismissive 
generally of the female characters on this show and it's really you know it's unearned and the way that Josh speaks to Donna in general Mm -hmm. you know like when she says can I have a favor and he says oh in addition to the weekly paycheck that we give you you know I mean he's he's kind of a turd you know (laughs) I love him but he is kind of a turd yep (laughs) (laughs) so it's not perfect I mean, yeah, no. the, the other big sort of, I mean, there's a few things in this episode that are imperfect. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to mention briefly, the other really imperfect thing that made me uncomfortable was all the campaign mm-hmm. talk in the West Wing oh, of the yeah. White House. Like, that's not mm-hmm. okay. You can't, like, run your next camp. You're not, you're supposed to separate your campaign talk from your governance talk. Like, everyone knows that, right? right? Mm-hmm. And, like, the idea that, like, uh, Leo is going back and forth in those two meetings and the president's right. saying, like, what's going on? He's like, don't worry about it. It's like, that's not actually separating anything. They're still in a room being paid for by taxpayers talking about your campaign. Right. <laughs> that made me uncomfortable. And then, of course, there's oh, all, yeah. like, the weird racism around terrorism in this show, which is a recurring problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the two trucks in a completely deserted area just happen to crash into each yes. other. And then the president looks up and casually says, Arab. Yeah. Is he Arab you know? for Gary Allen Clark? Is he Arab? No. Right. And we have this really uncomfortable moment. Now, this, of course, was uh, it aired in April, was probably shot in like, you know, uh, you know, January or so. And this was, you know, in 2002. So it's very, very soon after the September 11th attacks. And our understanding of terrorism has uh, has not become nuanced enough Mm -hmm. since then but has become a little more nuanced but in the moment the idea that our paragon of of liberal thought and philosophy Mm -hmm. this president you know just looks up and says arab exactly you know as though that that (sighs) is is the defining characteristic of terrorism that it's it's somehow not terrorism if the person doing it perpetrating it is not you know from a middle eastern country yeah Yeah. Um, really uncomfortable yeah, which is really uncomfortable and unfortunately something, an idea with which we still struggle a bit today, you know. Yeah, and an idea with um, which the show really struggles. You know, they, they made up a whole oh, yeah. fake country, Kumar, and they, and right. they called the people mm-hmm. the Kumari people, which, by the way, sounds mm-hmm. like what you would say in Star Trek if they were from a planet. Exactly. Like, it's exactly. just not the way that any kind of people uh, is referred to, except maybe, maybe mm. I think it was supposed to be Iraq, so it was like the Iraqis, but the Iraqi. it wasn't the Kumaris, it was the Kumari, which was, I always thought was like a really, really weird writing quirk of the right. show to make them sound like super other, you know? Yes. And, and, and this mm-hmm. show just sort of has that one throw-off moment that it took me out of the texture enough where yeah. I was just like, oh, God. <laughs> I mean, it does. It bounces you out of the moment. I want to pause here for because... a second and talk about this with my kids before we move on. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That you have to have this, you know, this discussion. And also the idea like the, the Arab you know, which feels to me like one of those old words, like Oriental, you know, <laughs> like the way of describing people um, that just feels it feels so flat. And and for somebody who especially in this show, like, you know, these these people are usually so good about understanding nuance and talking about those things that, that this would just sort of get thrown out and be left there. So overall, I mean, it's one of these things like every now and again, you do kind of feel the age 
of the show that that in the time that it was written, even with the understanding like this kind of elevated understanding that all these people have of these very, very complicated and nuanced issues, that we still have these moments where they, they fall into these mindsets that are, you know, much more uncomfortable to us now, you know, than they are at the time. I mean, one of the things that I find you know, uncomfortable is that with the exception of like Kathy, who is Sam's, you know, secretary, who is, is Japanese and Charlie, um, you know, we have like no diversity, you know, oh, in know. this. It's cast. white town. It is. It is complete <laughs> well, white town. It is the White House. I mm-hmm. mean, come on. Well, that's very, so, very true. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. And I actually know that they struggled with that when casting the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, I my understanding is that. C.J. Craig, my favorite character, could have been played by C.C.H. Pounder. Oh. And that was, she was the finalist along with Alice and Janney mm-hmm. for that part because that was something that they were actually aware of. Right. Yeah, it is problematic, but it's also not unrealistic. I mm-hmm. mean, the, the Obama administration, obviously, we saw more diversity than any previous administration. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not. If you, I mean, we we really do celebrate like our uh, women and uh, people of color in, in like the legislature, but it still really is mostly like old white dudes. So yeah. it, it it's it's not ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Aaron Sorkin tried to correct it in other shows, notably in the newsroom. I think, oh, of yeah. course, the uh, the main two main characters are both still uh, white middle aged mm-hmm. people, but um, you know, I, it, it is something that sort of is there. Um, but, you know, for all of the Izzy Arab and, you know, those things that make you uncomfortable, when I watch an old episode of The West Wing, there's still so much that's so good. I mean, if you think about all the quick, like, throwaway things that happen yeah. in the show, mm-hmm. that whole scene about how there's no such thing as a good hockey game, mm-hmm. that whole scene about, <laughs> you know, the rebate versus advance, uh-huh. you know, the nuke briefings, they're so tense. And despite my feelings about the campaign meeting happening across the hall, Leo going back and forth Mm -hmm. from, you know, the nuclear accident meeting to that VP meeting and back. It it was so tightly and beautifully and tensely written that the whole time I just I I was trying to take notes just so I could talk to you about it. I just kept looking at my notes. I just say like, wow, wow, (laughs) wow. You know, and like that homeownership loans is a thing that sends Toby over the edge with everything else oh, that's right. going on that I know, day. and that was just kind of thrown in there with this guy who was yes. trying to make political hay, you know, and with the homeownership so thing. it's so good. Yeah. And it's so good. So, I, I mean, I hope, I hope that people who are new to the show who see it and they're like, oh, great, it's all white people right. um, can just, oh, I don't want to say forgive it because that's not the right word, can just maybe um, give it. Oh, I don't want to say give it a pass either. That's not quite right either. Just do what I do Mm -hmm. and punch yourself in the face when one of those scenes happens. (laughs) (laughs) Hit pause, discuss it with your family. And enjoy the rest of it. And then just do the rest of it. Well, this is one of the things, too, that like I I discuss a lot with my students and, and in general on these podcasts is that you can't expect everything, especially things that were done like, you know, 15, 20 years ago to to reflect kind of our understanding as 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 a society, we evolve. But the important thing is, is I think not to look back at these people and say, well, they're sexist and they're racist. And so none of this has value. Like, the important thing is not that everybody who creates any piece of art do it with 
you know, exactly, you know, kind of catering to my particular understanding of how these things should be, but rather that I take the time to discuss the things that are, that are not okay, that are, you know, missing and that are wrong, that like we as viewers and as, as critics, that we talk about this stuff and we acknowledge this stuff and we say, yes, this is there. You know, because I think the biggest problem that we've had, you know, throughout history is not that, you know, we've always had everything so whitewashed, which actually, you know, really is a problem and, and, and you know, skewed male, you know, all the powers with the male and with the men characters and, and that, you know, we've got this, this like incredible whitewashing of all of these characters that are, that are in this space when we have a much, much more diverse populace that that's a problem. But what's important is that as critics that we acknowledge that and we say, yeah, you know, this is a thing, but it doesn't make the people who made the show sexist or racist or any of those things. It just means that there's something here that we need to acknowledge. The biggest problem, I think, in our media consumption, you know, you know, previously um, has been that we accept all of this stuff without comment and without question. And now I feel like we are, you know, especially because we have we have such a broader space where people can have these discussions where everybody can kind of weigh in and notice this sort of thing that we wouldn't have noticed before. But now we're noticing it and we're talking about it and we're acknowledging it at the same time understanding that there that it doesn't mean that these are bad people that they've done terrible things and that it completely invalidates the value of the work itself that we have to separate the the very real and very you know uh, very important criticisms that we may have of some of these things while still appreciating that there are wonderful things within the work itself, that it's it's complicated. We we like to take everything and make it so simple and just dismiss the things that, that don't fit exactly what we think they should be. But I think that because we ask these questions while still acknowledging the things about these these pieces of work that are so valuable and 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 so important, while at the same time acknowledging the things that maybe fall short a little bit, that that's what gets us, I think, where we we need to be in the next phase. That's why, you know, nowadays we see television shows that have so much more silent diversity. And what I mean by that is that we have people of different races, different sexes, different power differentials, you know, in various places. And we're not necessarily making a big deal of it. We're like, oh my goodness, here is an Asian person and they're in charge. It's unacknowledged. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's one of the things that's best done with audio. Because right. you can have mm-hmm. a, uh, you know, a person of color in your story and they're not in your story because they're a person of color. They're in your story because right. they're, there's, there's, they're in your story because they had the right thing to say. Right. Because it, it comes <laughs> the to moment. them being a person first and we deal right. with who they are as a person, as a character first. And the fact that they just happen to be, you know, a minority of some sort or whatever, which actually, honestly, you know, white people are going to be the minority soon. I'm looking forward to that because God knows we've screwed up everything in the majority. So let's give somebody else a shot. Um, but, you know, I, I think that we're seeing so much more diversity now, I think, because we've been having these conversations previously. But one of the things is you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's a problem with something doesn't mean that it doesn't have incredible value for what it is. And it's it's very easy to look at something and dismiss it for being sexist or racist or whatever. And I mean, things that are actively, like demonstrably, you know, destructively sexist and racist, we definitely need to question that. But I don't think that in, in the West, Wing, you know, for example, as white and male as it is, 
still has incredible value and I think still has its heart in the right place. And I think that that's important to acknowledge. It is. And I, I just have one question to yes. ask you. because I, I know we probably are getting close to the end. And I just want to ask you if you think it is within the president's purview to have the Secret Service break into someone's house to install a DVD player. What do you think? <laughs> well, you know, I think in this particular instance, you know, um, you could probably get away with that. But yeah, <laughs> like the president, the president has a lot of perks. There's a lot of perks to that office. But I, I yeah. love that moment, too, though, where he says, Me you too. know, I, I, bought I just feel bad DVD for Charlie. Player. I just think, what if Charlie had like left his dirty underwear out and was like, what are you talking about? There are people in my house. There are people in my house. <laughs> You can tell I'm I'm the person with dogs and I'm like, oh, God, please tell me you didn't go into my house before I got a chance to pick up that wee wee pad or whatever. Send the Secret Service into my house to. uh... (laughs) Well, especially because Charlie, I think, is still date. Is is he still dating Zoe at this point? (laughs) I don't know. That was so weird. That's a whole that's for a different guest. That's a whole that's a whole other discussion. But that was one other thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit in this episode um, is, is Ed and Larry. Did you notice Ed and Larry? What? Ed and Larry. Oh, my God. Okay. There are these two guys who kind of are in the background, but they were (laughs) in the meeting about Hoynes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know who you're talking about. (laughs) The staffers who, like, nobody knows exactly what their job is, but whenever we need to fill out the mural room or the Roosevelt room (laughs) with extra people in the meeting, it's always Ed and Larry. It was never clear exactly, like, which one was which. You never knew which was Ed and which was Larry, and it sort of became this, like, running joke throughout the West Wing that even, like, you know, all of the major characters would get them confused all the yep. time. But Ed was played by Peter James Smith and Larry mm-hmm. was played by William Duffy. Peter James Smith is the Asian guy. He was born in Taipei. So that's how we can tell. And he is Ed. Um, mm-hmm. But trying to tell the difference between them, every time they show up, it, it kind of became this like running joke in the yeah. West Wing, you know, about like, which one like, was Like Ed. red shirts on Star Trek, right? Right, like, exactly. Like which yeah. one is Ed and which one is Larry and what are their jobs? Nobody ever <laughs> knows what their jobs are. But they got to be pretty high level because they're sitting in on this meeting where they're talking about replacing Hoynes on the ticket, which is kind of a high level thing, I think, to be discussing at this point. <laughs> Basically, Ed and Larry are there because there are too many Chinese food boxes for just the three people to have. We cannot justify that kind of takeout without a couple extra people. (laughs) It's taxpayer dollars, Lonnie. Taxpayer dollars. Come on, Ed and Larry. Get in here. It is very You have something to say about this. (laughs) (laughs) But it was fun to see Ed and Larry. It's the first time on Jed Bartlett is my president that we've seen Ed and Larry. So I kind of wanted to throw that out and have that acknowledgement there because it was kind of fun to see them. All right. Is there anything else in this episode that you wanted to to talk about? Is there anything else that caught your eye? Well, despite the recent revelation that you drank beer in college, Lonnie, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to say I'm really glad you started this podcast. <laughs> I am so thrilled that you have been asked to be on it because I love the West Wing so. I have no one to talk about it with in my house as you'll find out if you ever talk to my husband for your show, he was watching <laughs> the Drew Carey show when the West Wing was on. Oh my God, it's breaking my heart. Oh, oh, I can't yeah. wait to this get a Kevin spoiler on the show. alert for yeah. you. So there's no one else I can talk about it with. So I <laughs> I just I couldn't be happier 
uh, to to be able to dive into this one with you. It's like really, really fun for me. Oh, well, I'm so glad that you could. And I hope that we can have you back sometime because it's always fun talking with you about this stuff. <laughs> oh, anytime. And I'll talk about anything you want. West Wing. I'll watch some brand new show I've never seen before to get a All chance right. to talk well, to you. All right. Well, just uh, I'll just let you know you're really signing up for I will pull you in for absolutely everything I do. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of Jed Bartlett is my president. Sadly, it's time to step out of our warm bubble bath of denial and get back to the real world where there's real work to be done. But I hope this respite has given you strength to face the world as it is and fight for it to be what it should be. Thank you so much, Rebecca Lavoie, for hanging out with me this week. It was so much fun. It was fun. And I'm just going to say this is, um, I proclaim, Molly Morello Day. Oh, that's good. All right. Well, awesome. <laughs> March 15th, Molly Morello Day. Official. Official because Rebecca Lavoie has made it so. <laughs> All right. I will be back next week with Mandy K. Ottaway and our thoughts on episode 10 of season three, Bartlett for America, in which we flash back to Bartlett's first campaign for president. Until then, here's a word from your president and mine, Jed Bartlett. Can I tell you what's messed up about James Bond? Nothing. Shaken, not stirred, will get you cold water with a dash of gin and dry vermouth. The reason you stir it with a special spoon is so not to chip the ice. James is ordering a weak martini and being snooty about it. Jed Bartlett is My President is a Chipperish Media production. To get exclusive Chipperish content and access to a community of amazing people, go to patreon.com slash chipperish. All clips in this podcast were used under the fair use exemption for criticism and commentary of the U.S. Copyrights Act. 